Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Buckle Top Podcast. We have an extra special, extra special guest today. Well, obviously, first, let's introduce ourselves. So, I'm Fifi. You know, we've got beautiful Asha rocking the braids, looking all cute, looking all pretty. Oh my God. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. And a very, 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 very special guest. I feel honored to have him on today. Because you know that means that we're moving up in the world. This is a this is a real somebody verified. Exactly, literally. Real somebody, you know. Yeah. So, would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Uh yes. Well, uh, thank you, thank you, uh, Aisha and uh, Phoebe for having me. It's um, you know, I was we were chatting earlier. I was saying that you know, whenever I get a contact from my people, Sierra Leoneans, I always respond first. I want to make myself available to my own people first, and everybody is secondary. So I was very happy uh, that you guys reach out and also about what you're doing. Uh, so I'm happy to be on Boku Talk. Um, my name is Ishmael Bia. I am Sierra Leonean, of course, and I am I am a writer. I am a New York Times and international best-selling author of three books. The first one is A Long Way Gone, uh, which is a memoir. And the second one is Radiance of Tomorrow, which is a novel. And the latest one is Little Family. And I'm currently living in Los Angeles um, uh, for, I think, if it wasn't for COVID, I would not be here, but I'm here. So So thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. No, thank you. I'm like, honestly, like, we were just saying to him, well, like, I was just saying to him, like, I actually couldn't even believe that he responded. Like, me and Fiona, we literally write a list and we say, we want these amazing, you know, prominent, not even prominent, just amazing Sheridanians that have done great things in the community to be on our podcast, you know? And it's something that we really do take pride in. We've had amazing guests so far, and you're just an addition to that, like another amazing guest. So we're so happy to have, you know, this amazing author, this amazing human rights activist on our podcast. Um, He's gonna speak to us about his story, guys. And um, I don't know, I wanna give like a little bit of a trigger warning, just cause you know, it's some of it is to do with war, you know, that ha- the war that happened in Sierra Leone, the civil war that happened um, in the 90s. I want to say, uh, please someone correct me if I'm wrong, 1991 to about 2001? Yes, 2001, 2002. Yeah. Sure so we're going to be talking about that, you know, everything that he's done after that, because that is not his whole story. Um, him as an author, he's done amazing things with UNICEF as well. He's got his current book, as he just said, that we're going to speak about. So yeah, Ishmael, let's get right into it so our first topic that we're going to speak about is you know your life during the civil war how did that start what do you remember being you know so if i'm from my from research we saw that you you were a child soldier from about 13. yes if i'm correct so what was life like before that and how did it just, how did that happen? How was the recruitment process, if you don't mind us asking? Um, well, I mean, the, the Sierra Leone, it's called usually Sweet Salon, and it's not for <laughs> a light reason. So before the war and everything that happened in the country, um, I grew up in, in, in an upcountry or upline, some people would call it. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm a village boy, so I grew up in the countryside. And I had a, a beautiful, remarkable life. I went to the river to swim. 
I, everybody in the community took care of the children. You know, I went to school, you know, Sierra Leone has still, at the time they had a British sort of model of education. So it was very rigorous. I went to school, read Shakespeare. There was, a, you know, introduction of American hip hop music. So I had a very simple, beautiful life, you know. Uh, I had not even gone to the capital city because Freetown, I was not interested because I had my life in the countryside was exciting enough that I had no desire really. And I remember as a kid, some of my friends whose families had means to go to Freetown for the holidays, they would literally cry when they had to go on holiday to Freetown. They didn't want to go because the upcountry was so much nicer. So just and now it seems like, to be the, you know, like the yeah. opposite. Exactly. So, but all of these things started to shatter because of the political climate in the country, you know. And we started to see scarcity of food and, uh, you know, whatever the political climate was, uh, there was uh, some people in power that did not want to have proper elections that basically destroyed the institutional structures in the country. And therefore, a civil war was started to get rid of them, but that war lost its focus very quickly and became one that people used to sort of plagiarize Sierra Leone, I mean, to, um, um, to, to basically come and take all of our, our minerals um, at that time. Um, and. Uh, and introduce weapons into the country. And so as a result, the war reached my part of the country when I was 12 years old and everything I knew as a boy stopped and I started running from war. Um, by the time I was 13, I'd lost everything that was there to me. So my family, including home. Um, and then um, I went to a military base along with some friends of mine to hoping it would be the safest place to go. Uh, that didn't turn out to be the case. So that's where I was recruited. Um, I was trained briefly to how to fight as a soldier and I found myself in war. So I had grown up as a boy who, uh, who wanted to be an economist because that's what my father wanted. That's not actually what I wanted, but, um, but I was no longer going to school. So war became my life and I was in it for nearly three years. Basically. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. How do you, whew. okay. That's, that is heavy. So like, being a child soldier, right? Um, what was that experience like? Because I feel like everyone can make their assumptions, but you being in it yourself, what was it like for you? What was it like, you know, having to leave family? Um, and then also, like, let's get into when UNICEF, you know, made their way and, you know, took you out of that situation. Like, how was that for you? You know, war is, war is very difficult, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to write about it was to really give people an insight into it, you know. Uh, first of all, there is nowhere in the world, including the war in Syria, where children choose violence as an option. They only choose it when they don't have anything else left, and it becomes kind of a way to survive. But in order to survive in this madness, you had to embrace it fully. And that required being part of the violence and bringing it to other people. But also, um, through that, you had access to certain things. For example, as a, when as a boy, your life is shattered, or as a girl, you know, the other thing I want to make sure people understand that is that uh, child soldiers are not just boys. They were also girls fighting as soldiers. Mm. And really? there's also a special sort to them, yes. I, that. I, know that, I know that sounds like a bad stereotype, but you know, maybe it's my ignorance, but you know when you watch movies and things, it's always... It's always boys. Yeah, it's always yeah. boys. You always see that maybe they will exploit the girls in a different, different way, way. Yeah. but it's never front line. So that is really interesting. 
well, it's quite interesting to hear. Yeah, because what happens is that the, the image of the child soldier was that was brandized in the mindset of the international community was the boy with the AK-47. So yeah. everybody thought that was it, but that's not that. You know, I fought alongside, there were girls uh, who were soldiers and who fought, but also they were the wives of commanders. And these are all, I'm talking about all people who are under age. And there were even girls during the war who had, who were pregnant and they gave birth to those children that they have to live with after the war. So their trauma is even more difficult. And this is something that I don't think Sierra Leone dealt with very well at all, you know, as a country. So those girls were kind of left behind. And also when you rehabilitate girls, there's a sensitivity that comes with it. It's not like boys where, you know, this is the camp for the former child soldier boys. For the girls, because there's a sensitivity with the sexual part of it, and all of that, and you know, and how they go back into society, uh, so people don't look at them as the wife of ex-commander and this and that. There's a way you have to hide them in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but this generally is the fate of women, black women particularly, uh, in the world. They're always uh, assaulted, pushed to, the back. <laughs> yeah, pushed to the back constantly. Even by us black men, we do it all the time, you know. I'm glad so, you yeah. said that. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because yeah. maybe you saying that, being who you are, these black men will open their eyes and figure something yeah. out. Because we, we, need, we need to stand up for our women, you know. If we don't stand up for women, we don't treat them well, we give access to other people to look at them the way they look at them, mm -hmm. uh, you know. For the rest of the world to sort of belittle the intelligence and every man that you see, uh, that is successful, that has done anything with themselves, is because they have a support of a woman behind them. You know, uh, how you come into this world, a woman gives birth to you, one way or the other. So from that get-go, there, there should be respect. If you look at our African communities, the women are the ones who always hold the economy together. They are the economists. They manage the homes financially and everything. But oftentimes, when it comes to things, you know, we, we just want them to, even like where I was, and I'll come back to the story, but since we started talking about this, you know, my mind a lot, is that, you know, I was at some event not so long ago and I was really disturbed, perhaps because I'm now a father and I have two girls and I Aww. see it more so uh, now because, for example, if you go to somewhere where there's a dance, there's a celebration of any kind, you always have the DJ asking, can the girls come in the front and shake it for us? That is wow. very belittling. It's like, why don't you ask everybody to come and shake it? Why all you have to be the women? Why you have to, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, really it's the way that we begin to, 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 to use black girls' bodies and sexualize it early on mm -hmm. in that way that then the rest, we give access to people to do all the things that are, that are not in, in the interest of preserving the dignity of our women, you know? Yeah. But let me go back to the story uh, of me coming out of the war. You know, there were girls in the war that fought just as us. Um, and obviously they were forgotten uh, after the wars ended and the talk of child soldiers went to only the boys, you know. And, um, but when I came out of the war, uh, the way I came out of the war was that UNICEF workers, UN workers came to my command base and they basically uh, asked the commanders to discern some of the, uh, the people that look like children more than anything. And because so someone left behind? Yeah, if you were, uh, uh, you know, some boys when they are maybe 15, 16, they are, or even girls, they are much taller, more, mus more uh, muscular and stronger. So they had to verify whether they were really under 18. For some of us who look like we're under 18, there was no denying it. 
we were the first batch of people to be removed from the war. And that basically meant that they took the weapons from us and they brought us to the outskirts of Freetown, uh, on the west side of Freetown, where we stayed at a rehabilitation home. And I went through that process to learn how to function again as a normal kid. I had to withdraw from drugs. I've been addicted to it during the war. I was traumatized. There was a lot of nightmares from things that I'd seen. I didn't think anything would be possible in my life. And again, what people forget, because oftentimes when people present the situation of Sierra Leone or any other country, is always um, the foreigners who oppress us, the ones who intervened. All of these things I'm telling you, these were Sierra Leoneans who were doing this work. They really? The center. Yeah, there was no... As in the people that basically... The as the people who are the UNICEF workers are the people who work at the center, who are the psychologists who dealt with us, these were Sierra Leoneans who were doing it. Oh so my gosh, can, 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 can I just say, can I just say, people. that's what I thought. That has just warmed my heart differently, wow. like differently because the way they really portray it out there, it's like, the white savior coming to save people. It's always the white savior. The white savior guys were the ones who just walk at the offices. They were afraid to come and be with kids like us. When you watch things like Blood Diamond, which is a poorly depicted film, I think. Absolutely. But you got Leonardo DiCaprio and there with his Broco Broco Creo, and it was horrid. I hate that because it's like, why won't you just give the people the accolades that actually did the work? What is wrong? Why can you not portray something exactly how it was? What is so hard This is why I started writing for this specific reason because whenever our stories are told, usually it's told by others. Yeah. Obviously, they give themselves agency in the story and not us. So we always look like we are bystanders in our story. So when you have, for example, you have in this movie, you mentioned Blood Diamond, you have a story that was written. I don't think any Sierra Leonean was consulted, the ones that lived in the war. And they made it, you know? And then you have this white guy who comes to Sierra Leone and who says to Sierra Leoneans, you want to survive and live, follow me. If I came to London, I don't know London as much as you do, and I tell you, you want to live in London, follow me. Would that make sense to you? You know longer what I do. I would. How would I know how to survive in London? I'll be like, so what are you talking about, man? <laughs> the African is always looked at as one that does not have the intelligence to actually understand even their own story. Mm-hmm. So they get pushed aside. So this is actually why I decided to write my first book. I thought to myself, listen, we can't let these people who come to our country for two weeks become the experts on our lives. You know, yeah. and usually they stay in the capital city and all of a sudden they become famous, they know all these things about us. And, but obviously they draw these conclusions about us that do not empower us, that do not empower younger people coming from us to see themselves and people who are successful. So it becomes just them. So I started writing really <laughs> out of that frustration. Yeah. I thought to myself, we have to write our own stories. Yeah. We have to tell our own stories. If our countries are broken, we have to be the ones that explain how it is broken, not an outsider, because that POV is always going to have its biases, you know? And so that's how I started writing about myself, really, for for this particular reason, because a lot of people were saying that Sierra Leone, a lot of people did not know about Sierra Leone until the Civil War in the 1990s. And so that was their first introduction to a, a country as Sierra Leone. So they did not know any of the context of people's lives in Sierra Leone until then. Mm. So that's what kind of permeated the, the, the media landscape and the international mindset. So when you say Sierra Leone, people think, oh, blood diamonds, civil war, 
Nobody think about our intellectuals, our heroes, our writers, our politicians, our history, you know? Nobody thinks of any of that. So I, I was very upset when that would come about. And, and then secondly, when they talked about children who came from war, people used to look at me and think that I was this lost generation because I've been through war, I was not intelligent. I could not uh, survive anymore. I was only capable of violence. But here I was in the United States University at the top of my class, you know? <laughs> so I thought to myself, you know, even though I'd been through all this other stuff, you know? Yeah. So I was like, that's not true. So I wanted to change that, that narrative to really give people the necessary context about our brilliance, our intelligence, but also our, our, our shortcomings. It's part of we are multifaceted human beings, but not just like uh, bystanders to our lives. <laughs> anyway. Which you gonna say something, you know? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, is it Fort Bay? You know Fort Bay College, the university? My mom's always going on, oh, yeah. Huh? I, I so know my mom's always going on about that college, sorry. Yeah, it's like the college. oldest, I think it's like the oldest university in West Africa, the first, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine, and they wouldn't know that, it's yeah. blood diamond they're talking about. <laughs> that wasn't even filmed in Sierra Leone, <laughs> in Mozambique. Which is rude. <laughs> <laughs> What's kind of fit here me? He's really. Seriously, Naso, Naso can do it. Seriously. Honestly. <laughs> oh, it works me, but it warms my heart to know that you know what, in such a traumatic and crazy time, the people that actually helped you to come out of it was not the white man. It was yeah. actually like, do you know how nice it is to hear? Because you would never, had you not been. Sorry that you went through what you went through, of course, but had you not had gone through what you went through and were able to articulate your experiences and write your stories, how many of us would have really known mm. that's what happened? Because yeah. I'm not being funny. That's the first I've ever heard of that. that. Even when well, I read about it, yeah. I, I will explain even more to you. Like whenever people talked about the Sierra Leone Civil War ending, they always give the credit to the British Army, to the UK. That is absolute bollocks. It's not, it did not happen like that, you know? By the time the British came, the war had already been exhausted. People were ready to lay arms, you know? What actually had been consistent in Sierra Leone was ECOMOC, which is a, a West African peacekeeping force that comprised of soldiers from Nigeria, uh, and primarily Nigeria, Guinea, and most of the West African countries that have a, a sort of peacekeeping force that goes into these places before international intervention happens. So they actually have been holding things together. That credit was completely taken away from them because the British arrived at the very end when everybody was exhausted. And in fact, the, the British army was captured by these guys called the West Side Boys, who was a military in Okra Hill. You know, and they don't talk about that. The, the whole Royal British Army was captured by a bunch of uh, Sierra Leonean boys. But when they presented, it's always presented as if the British came and then they saved Sierra Leone. They did not. The, the other people, other African nations were already uh, taking care of stuff, you know. But this is what happens because then, again, we are, looked like, uh, we are looked to as people who don't have solutions for everything. Think about COVID that, that just happened. Most of West Africa has experience in dealing with pandemics. Did anybody ask them about solutions? Because we are not thought of to have intelligence or to have solutions. But they come and they ask us if they can practice their yeah, vaccine. Like, like or they, they come and they say to us that, you know, 
uh, it's possible that if you reach, don't get me wrong, obviously, like you said, they've got experience with dealing with pandemics and the situations could be a bit more dire depending on the healthcare system. But yeah. in that sense, there's no faith in that. There's no faith that, you know, people are going to actually be able to beat this out there. They're probably more likely to beat it than we are, not being funny. We have no idea what we're doing here. This country's so... I'm not trying to diss the government yet, but honestly, like, we got in a lockdown, now we're going back into a lockdown. Like, what? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But then they, yeah. they, their pride is so much that they don't want to look to the people that have been through stuff because they look down on Africa <laughs> as a whole. But that's why I like what you guys are doing because I think these are the conversations that are going to tap into other young minds to start thinking differently. Yeah. The more you have people on board who share, who talk about what these places really are, the more we begin to believe in our own wisdom and intelligence for ourselves that we've learned to disbelieve in a way. And therefore we allow this, these other people to come and disrupt what could be possible in our countries. You know? mm -hmm. So like Ishmael, we wanted to also speak to you about forgiveness. So when I was doing some research about you, I read somewhere that you, you spoke about, you know, learning to forgive yourself because obviously as a child soldier, you know, you've done things that, basically you was under the influence it's not you that's not a part of you but you had to do it anyways because you was forced to so where did you come to that place where you said to yourself I forgive myself and I'm moving on uh, it took it took a while you know um, mm -hmm. first I think I, I had to uh, deal with my own stories and my own inner demons um, and I realized that if I wanted to live if I wanted to stop surviving, which I knew how to do very well, and I wanted to really have a life and live, that I needed to uh, have a different way of looking at the experiences I've had in the war. And one of those ways was to not feel guilty about what I had happened, which is not an easy thing. Like when I moved to the United States, I felt so guilty that I had survived the war, that there are certain people who had lost their lives because of my participation in it, but that I was now living in this part of the world where I had access to opportunities that I would not allow myself to enjoy anything. Like if I had money, I would not allow myself to buy anything nice because I felt that I owed so much to so many people because I'd been part of the destruction, you know? Yeah. But then I realized that by doing so, I didn't allow myself to grow or to go ahead as well. I'd lost my childhood, but I was also losing my young adulthood because I was in this uh, space of just feeling guilty about everything. So then I really started seeing a bunch of psychologists and therapists and I got to understand that, uh, first of all, the war wasn't my fault. I didn't start the war. No child started the war in Sierra Leone. Um, but one of the ways that I could do to forgive myself, but even though uh, it wasn't my fault, is also to do things in country to help rebuild it. So I actually created a foundation um, and used proceeds of my first book uh, to give scholarships to kids to go to school, to rebuild schools in towns and villages where it had been destroyed. And that's how I started to forgive myself because I felt, you know, I needed to contribute to uh, building back. I'd contributed to destruction even though I was dragged to it. So I had to own up to that. So that's really how I started. And, and, and it felt good to do those things, you know, and I still do those things. But if in, the, in, that, in that initial stage, it felt good to really uh, feel like, I could use my influence or my success to help other people who, who have lost everything during the war. So that's what I, how I started. That's amazing because the thing is, yeah, I don't think people realize how important forgiveness is, especially in situations 
where you know you the situation that you've been in because I feel like you could have taken two routes you could have gone down the route where you felt like oh you know I'm, I'm guilty of this and I'm guilty of that and I'm not going to move on with my life you could have maybe even just completely just denounced even getting help or you know denounced even getting therapy but because you took that route that road to say you know what I'm going to you know forgive myself gradually and slowly you're doing what you're doing now and through forgiveness you've been able to help other people through forgiveness you've produced these amazing books now let me tell you the story about how I actually came across your book so I remember working in um John Lewis so a department store here and um I came across this old Sierra Leonean lady. So I, I was just talking to her normally, and then I realized there was an accent. I asked her, oh, you from Sierra Leone? She was like, yeah. So, you know, normally when Sierra Leoneans, when we meet each other, it's just like, you got to stick by each other. So I was just helping her throughout her whole time there when she was doing shopping. So me and her actually became really good friends. And whenever she would come into the store, she would always ask, oh, where's Aisha? Where's Aisha? And then one day, she bought in a book for me. And the book happened to be your book, A Long Way Home. And when I read it, I was just like, again, obviously how I'm feeling now, like, wow, this is crazy. Like, this is what he's gone through. But then when I, what's it called? When I actually reached out to you and then realised, hold on, this is what he's gone through. Like, really just realising it speaking to my dad about everything as well because he's a black he's a really big fan of yours i was just like wait hold on this is a really really this is literally part of like our serenonian you know literature this is a part of us you know like we have to continue just taking in our people so yeah like when i came across your book in that way from someone from an older generation as well i was just like okay wow this is this is amazing but yeah that's just my little story about how i came across your book well, thank you thank you for giving it a chance thank you for reading it you know it's, oh, uh, it's, right. it's, right. it's part right. of what you know i mentioned earlier what i had really wanted to do was not only to change how uh, people viewed sierra leone and people view somebody like me coming from that experience but it was also to change the, this uh, idea that uh, intelligence belongs to other places but not our home you know um, even though I was a kid who went through this experience, it did not diminish my intelligence or the wisdom that I have from coming from this country, you know. And I think oftentimes what has happened over the years because of so many failures in politics in Sierra Leone, we have disbelieved in our own intelligence and capacity so much so we look outside for solutions. We stop looking that, you know. So over the years, when I've encountered Leonians who have read my work, I think that's what has meant more to me is the fact that they are able to see the, the remarkable beauty we have, the intelligence and the problems we have, but also that we are the ones who could shape it if we wanted to, you know. And it's also, uh, even when I started writing, I thought to myself, I want to see people who like me in literature. I want to see who people's names who are, you know, Memuna, Aisha, you know, Muhammad, Ibrahim, no, in literature. I don't want to just read about the Johns <laughs> yeah. and the Malcolms and the, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, because that, that is power. When you can read something and you can hear yourself in it, you can feel yourself in it, you can smell a cassava leaf in the pages of a literature book. Mm. This, these things have a strong psychological impact on how you feel about yourself, yeah. you know? So when you face the world, you know that you are as intelligent or even more so 
than other people. You know what I mean? So yeah. for me, these are the reasons that I, I, I hope. When I used to go to Sierra Leone, actually one of the things I do is that whenever I go to Sierra Leone, when I have a new book out, I will get my publisher to ship uh, uh, boxes of it um, uh, to, to UNICEF. Um, that's the safest way you can get there, you know, anyway, through yeah. the diplomatic channels. And then once I'm in country, I would just go around in the libraries around the country and just leave it on the shelves wow. and study areas because so that kids can pick it up and read it, you know. <laughs> and I've even been in, in Sierra Leone okay. where people were discussing one of my books and, they, you know, and I was standing there, you know, and I said, so who is this guy? They'd be like, ah, but I should be a big man who. And I'm like, hey, and I'm like, tell me more about it. They don't expect that it's me. They expect it's this older guy who walks around with a suit and I'm there in my shorts, you know. In what? In my, my hand back. They tell me. Yeah. It's too hot for a suit. Honestly. People deny me. I've come to and people said to me, uh, but you know to Ish, you know to Ishmael Bia. But Ishmael Bia is a big man. You know, can't have back where they can't have me. <laughs> Because you know, is it? I think they think when you've made it, when you've made it, yeah, or when you, I guess, maybe when you you have some sort of popularity, they expect you to go there with like one big like Range Rover or something, and it's just like no, like, no, it's not that. <laughs> well, no, no, actually, because you know, do you know, people absolutely do the absolute most when they're going to freestyle, like you know, you know, the big like say if it was a female, the big lashes, the big nails, the big that you. Like you're dripping with money, they expect you. Yeah. They don't expect you to look humble. They don't expect you to look calm. They expect you to look like everyone must see what you're wearing every day. Everything shine, 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 shine. Yeah. No. <laughs> but you know, I've observed this. You know, as a writer, I always observe it. I observe this is always people who come back home and do this are always people who are trying to hide their failures from wherever they are coming from, instead mm -hmm. of just coming home and embracing being home. They want to show people home that they are doing so well wherever they're coming from. Yeah. So they have all that bluff, bluff business and they make other people feel bad. But I'm like, you know, it, first of all, what if I'm in salon when it's so hot? Why am I going to wear a suit and sweat in that thing? You know, like, <laughs> you know, it no, doesn't make sense. Why, why would I have my, my money beat me up and sweat just to look like that? You know, yeah. it's my country. When I'm there, I want to talk to people as, so, you know, and I gave a lecture from Bay College years ago as well. Um, and, is the same thing. Like no, people don't expect that it's me when I show up. They just, they just be like, "Well, you team up and about they wait for Ishmael." They can't say I'm Ishmael. Like, no, no. <laughs> that's quite humbling for them then, because it's like, I, I think that's it's a nice, it's a nice way to humble them, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah. In the way they look at things, because mm -hmm. they'll probably like, like we said earlier, they're expecting you to look one way. And I promise you, that's something that I consistently struggle with. That. I would imagine something or someone in one way and then it's completely the opposite and I'm like, girl, you need to stop doing that. It's important for young people to see that it is possible to be whoever it's as a writer because when you put yourself on that pedestal, people think it's impossible. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've always thought to myself, you know, I want people to see that I used to be that boy on the street like them. So mm -hmm. therefore they can do it as well. If I come and I show that I'm this big man over here, then they think uh, I can't do it. You know, they disbelieve in themselves. So I, I'm as humble because that's my nature. And when they see that, then they say, ah, oh, you know, that man, they, 
you know, his, his life is just like, it was just like me, you know? So I can do it as well, you know? For me, I that's think, more important than anything else. And another thing I think is, is really good um, is that, you know, you being able to do that, it, it allows a level of representation for them to kind of, they'll become more receptive, if you understand. Like, if I, if it was me, like, you know, I'm going to be more receptive to someone I feel like that I can relate to rather than somebody that is presenting me with something and then they act like they're just well off, like they ain't got my time. Because if I have a question or inquiry or anything in regards to it and I want to message you or I'm a, like, sometimes you need to take that leap of faith. Sometimes you get a response, sometimes you don't. Like just like Asha did, who's absolutely amazing because she took the leap of faith and emailed you, messaged you and here we are today. So God bless yeah. you, Asha, always. But like, you know what I mean? In order for for you to feel that you don't want to, you're not going to, you're not going to be as open to things when you approach someone and they they look a certain or they act a certain way or they react a certain way. It's just, so, you know, it's nice because in that way, maybe you probably encourage more people to read, let alone reading just your books. And then they okay. go on to write. They become great writers, script writers, <laughs> producers and whatever sense. And, I think that's the encouragement they need more out there anyway. And I think generally across, you know, the black community, like we're doing big things, but we are such a blessed race. And a lot of the time it is a lot of discouragement around our stereotypes, who we are, who we're supposed to be. That actually stops a lot of people producing and doing it. Do you know, yeah, sorry, I'm rambling on, but do you know how much it takes here for you as a black person woman man like i feel like there's an inner rule like of course you have to do for us to do to achieve the things that we are achieving now because it's hard people are, are constantly making you feel like you are not capable yeah it's Absolutely. mad it's actually yeah. mad so yeah i get it completely like it's good and it's a nice it's a good shock to them that yeah. when they see you it's like oh, oh. Mm -hmm. I think as well, it also shows them that they don't have to even change themselves that much to make it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think people think that, yeah, in order to show that, in order to, like, physically show that you've made it, that's when you have to kind of change yourself and then just act like a fool and, you know, have all of these, you know, assets and stuff. They're amazing. Don't get me wrong. Material things are great, but... Mm -hmm. There's nothing, there's nothing like having that real talent, you know what I mean? And there's nothing like humility as well. So them seeing you in your shorts and you have back and you want t-shirts, like it will show them that, okay, I don't have to change myself completely to, you know, make it somewhere else. I just have to put in the work. And that's exactly what you did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is so nice to hear, man. Honestly, it's very nice to hear. But yeah, I want to actually talk to, just on the subject of when you do go back to, Salon to ask though, like you know you went to America and you did all of like you know your your personal development growth and forgave yourself and you know you went through that whole journey how when you when you made your first trip back to Sierra Leone how, how was that for you was it hard like did you find it you know difficult what what kind of like what was the process with that how did that go you know did you like I'm not like did you go did you see places that gave you flashbacks like, you know, how was that? Yeah, I mean, the, when I left Sierra Leone, uh, the, I started living in the U.S. in, in 1998, and I left Sierra Leone uh, in 97. The war was still going on, um, and when the war ended in 2002, in 2003, I went back because I was very restless being away from home, even though 
it was burning and falling apart. It's my home. And there are just certain feelings I, I get from being there. So what I decided to do, as soon as the war ended, I was in university, I decided to go back. Uh, it was very difficult because there were still very strong reminders of the war. There were still um, uh, walls that had bullet holes in them. There were burnt cars on the side of roads. They were, you know, up country was even worse. But I went back because I wanted to return to have contact with the land again, to see how I felt. It was very difficult. I had a lot of nightmares. I had difficulty sleeping. Uh, but then I continued going back year after year. And I even went and lived in Sierra Leone again. And slowly I saw those changes happen. Those walls were no longer have bullet holes in them. There was, that car was not on the side. The, the, the tree that was bullet riddled what was, had now grown, had a new ingrowth. So I saw the renewal itself and that, that really was, was interesting to see. And that also changed my mental space for the country a bit. Um, and it's changed quite a lot since all of that, you know, it's, uh, uh, yeah, so. That's quite interesting. My first time to Freetown actually was just after the war as well. First ever time. And like we spoke, I spoke about it on then, another episode, but I remember when we landed, I didn't want to go. I didn't even know there was a war. I was so young. First of all, like I knew there was a war, but I didn't know how bad. I didn't know it was going straight after. But I remember when we got there, imagine my first time in Africa, I didn't know what to expect. And I just remember driving past, like it was dark and all these like half burnt buildings, like buildings that were broken down. And yeah, it was like, it was, I was just a bit like, where am I? Like, it felt like a bit like, you know, <laughs> you know, like growing up, you watch films and I felt like I was in a film, like one of those, you know, oh, where am I like, I, I just didn't. Then obviously went to my um, auntie's house, went to sleep, woke up the next day and then, you know, everything started to become more, like it wasn't, that area where we was, wasn't, you know, um, what's the word, deteriorating. So destroyed but you destroyed. it wasn't it was i guess the journey to the house i just remember seeing all these buildings like there was like half burnt building here like buildings that like, just falling apart left right and i was just thinking oh, where am i like i was so confused but i had never been there before so it's kind of like you don't know what to expect you come here now and it's like that's the first thing you see but then actually i enjoyed that trip it took me a while as a kid and then I didn't want to go back for a while, then I went back. And, you know, like you said, as you keep going, you become more used to a place. Obviously, it's not the same thing as what you're saying, but, you know, like... But the place changes as well. Yeah. When you see that change, you know, so... Yeah, that's quite, that's quite mad. Um, so, like, you know how you said, like, you know, when you... Would you say, like, for you, going back there, obviously, like, you did say that, you said that it was helpful because when the place changes, things started to change, and that you became more comfortable being there and whatnot like it's it's kind of almost like you're saying things that you kind of fear to try and face it head on mm. was that was that something that you know you had to kind of develop before you got there like was there a was that preparation that you went through before you went there like mentally in your mind like with your therapist whoever that you had to go through in order to like you know prepare yourself for that journey Yes, I mean, I, I, I thought about, I envisioned returning back because there was one thing that was very clear in my head. I knew that wherever I lived in the world, it would never be where I end up living for the rest of my life, that I'll have to go back home. Mm. So I cannot divorce home completely, you know. Uh, some people do that, they leave and they never want to go back. But I wasn't one of those, I always knew that 
I would go home, you know, no matter what I'm doing in my life, I would go back to my country and that it would, there's something, there's some sustenance that I will get from just being on my own land, you know. And so when I returned, I guess that was that desire uh, was my strength that I needed to reconnect with this land mm -hmm. again. Um, and so when I went back, uh, and sure enough, that's what I needed, actually. Um, well, I've lived in many parts around the world and beautiful cities, remarkable countries, but I always feel 100% uh, happier. I smile more widely when I'm in Sierra Leone, even though that's where I had an early uh, upbringing that was a bit difficult. When I land there, as you know, you know, as we were talking earlier, like just any, in any African country for that matter, there's such a vibrancy in yeah. people. Yeah, uh, people, uh, there's such a uh, people have a amazing sense of humor. Uh, people are very passionate in anything. You have people having a conversation. You think they're gonna like chop each other's head off, but it's just <laughs> very passionate about the conversation. You know. <laughs> so when I go with with American friends who are Westerners, they always be like, "Well, how come everybody's so like?" You know, I was like, "No, people are just passionate." You know. Mm -hmm. You know, even how people call you to come, there's so much passion. They, you, Kanaaba, Kanaaba. It's very aggressive. Sometimes you have to just be like, huh? Yeah. Like, if you're not taking like, what they're saying, you think they're they cussing you out or something. They don't mean it. Well, yeah, that's that's rich coming from me because I get so upset when they start talking about like, hey, you know, so it's passionate. Passionate. When you go back, do you stay in Freetown or do you go upland or do you go all over? I, I start in Freetown because, you know, when you land and you cross from Lunge into the city, it's such a taxing, you know, it's very such a long journey that you need to be in Freetown for a bit. It's and then I go to Bo, which is the second city, and then I just go up country. I like Freetown, but Freetown has gotten quite crowded and overcrowded over the years. Um, you know, I, we have uh, our new mayor, which uh, Yaki uh, Sawyer is he's trying to, you know, he's trying, <laughs> he's trying to uh, build it up a little bit. But I think there are too many people uh, in a very small space, you know, and we haven't really gotten a chance to uh, rethink the layout of the city that we have better but it's a beautiful city you know yeah. i mean with the mountains and the ocean and everything so i guess sometimes you forget <laughs> how the the busyness and the craziness of it but it also has this energy that's really remarkable you know yeah. so the energy um, is too sweet man isn't it the they definitely need to figure out the whole um the the crowd they need to figure that out because I don't think I, I don't think I realized how crowded it, crowded it was until I came I went back last year and I was just like why is this place so choked up but then I don't know how true this is but I was told that especially after the war that's when a lo that's when loads of people from Upland decided to move down to Freetown Absolutely. and I, I guess I guess I understand why but at the same time a lot of people are now building their houses on the hills they're building their houses on mountains. It's not safe. Not and that's safe. how you end up situations with the mudslide that happened, you know? Yeah. So uh, there just needs to be some sort of restrictions in how many people can be coming to live in, in Freetown because we want to be safe as well. Because like you said, it's so vibrant and so beautiful. Everyone's lovely. Everyone wants to help you. That's one thing I love about Sierra Leone as well. So helpful, but we want to be safe as well. So guys, please 
Do you know what I heard? I heard that they're building and well, they're thinking about building maybe a town nearby, not mm. too far out. That you know, maybe that's what they need. I don't know what the solution would be for that because really, it's a peninsula. It's, I think it's surrounded solution, by water. Like the solution is is in my mind at least. You know, I think the solution is not to uh, build something next to Sierra Leone. Obviously, you need to have regulations of how people build in Sierra Leone. There needs to be strict regulations mm -hmm. so that collapsing um there need to be a lot of irrigation systems in the country for just so that when it rains the water doesn't stagnate that comes with other health issues that all of these things need to happen but i think what needs to happen as you said rightly after the war there's an urbanization that happened in Sierra Leone that was unlike anything most people who had left the countryside came to the capital city in search of opportunities and they stayed and then more people just came so the countryside is quite empty and so for that to change, I believe, there has to be a policy that allows opportunities to be in the countryside and not just in Freetown. Exactly. You know, for example, if you want to get an ID card, you can only do it in Freetown. You want to renew your passport only in Freetown. So everybody comes to Freetown and stay because if you want any access to anything that the state does quickly, it's in Freetown. But it's if not you even in both. Out, so that makes sense then. Home, McKinney, other places that have government functional, full-fledged government institutions that function there, it pushes people to go there and then get job opportunities there. And those places have spaces where people can live, you know? And so that's what needs to happen. Opportunities need to be spread out in the country. Yes. And not just in Freetown. And then people will go in search of them and return to their homes again into their, you know? But if it's just... Even when you look at the international organizations that come to do work in our countries, they're all based in the capital city. So why do you think other people are not gonna come there for the access to that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, they go up country and they do something and then they come back. They don't even sleep there sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but if they have headquarters in these places, okay. all over, then those people who work for that company will go, their families will go with them. They will create job opportunities, so, you know, so it's, out, that that actually makes so much sense because that that makes so much sense. It's like you know certain yeah, like open up different branches, open up job opportunities, build up the cities yeah. that they are already because there's enough cities for Kenema, Makeni. Yeah, I've been to Makeni. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, they, oh, nice Kono. Kono yeah. is beautiful. There are so many nicer places that if you open industry. Even just the, what government offices are, like how you get your birth certificate notarized, you have it in Bo, in McKinney, in Kenemana, so people don't have to come. Then yeah, that yeah. Works, you know? And that creates jobs as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's not just about, if everything is just concentrated in Freetown, everybody comes to Freetown, which is why we have this. Is there beaches up in that upland? I've never been to that, the beach. Are there yes, beaches? Along, if you go along the Matrujong area, everywhere where you're along the, the the Little Scarsis and the Great Scarsis River, and also the, the Manor River. There's also the, uh, the River Jong, and there's the Bont Island. Well, we no, have, it's no, not just no, in Freetown that uh, people think, people always think that it's just in Freetown where the beauty is, because again, that's where most development happens, that's where mm -hmm. most people go. But the rest of the countryside, you could be sitting on a whole beach by yourself somewhere in the country. <laughs> okay, I wouldn't want that. Too many no, stories about Mami Wata, I'm all right. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Mami Wata, what I tell you that story there? If I tell you, listen, first of all, yeah, first of all, first of all, there's three things, right? 
my family's from a, a beach village, yeah? We're from <laughs> Hamilton. So, first of all, when I went there, I went number two, right, one time, and my grandma, God rest her soul, was like, um, you lot don't go into that water because you know they can't, you, you, don't go, you don't come from this beach and go into somebody else's water. So I was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So we went number two, lived our best life, came back, I had the worst cold of my life. Like, I promise you. She goes, it's an hotel, you said, not for go swim that pussy water. <laughs> from that day on, you will never catch me swimming anybody else's water. Then, on top of that, when we used to go clubbing with my cousins, I used to be like, oh, don't you think it would be cute to like walk on the beach that like, in the night time? Because you know when you go to the clubs, all the, the strip, most of the strip is on Lomley, the strip, yeah? So it's like, oh, let's cross over and like, you know, go on the beach or whatever. It's like, don't go too far, oh, because my mwata, my mwata, they can't, they can't catch you. Yeah? And drink in the water. No. Oh my gosh, please. Uh-uh. No. I don't want to be on the beach alone because nobody will hear my cries. Exactly. It'll just be you and the water, you know. <laughs> Nobody will know. Nobody will know. And you know what? The sea is big. You will That's never. A, they'll turn you into a myth. They'll be like, eh, you know, you know, everywhere. What happened to uh, what's it called? That became. Mom, what's up? <laughs> is it that became from London? That became from London. It's always a story. You don't disappear. Go. Just go no more. <laughs> that's the beauty about people they're natural storytellers you know so yeah. they always worry about everything mm-hmm. which is in itself a medicine a way that allows people to deal with things you know mm-hmm. there's always humor there's always stories people always you know and that's how we grew up and even when you leave Sierra Leone if you're Sierra Leone no matter where you live your family would transmit those stories to you yeah. We're just telling you those things. So you always carry a piece of Sierra Leone with you no matter where you are. You know? In some ways, you could almost say that it's almost therapy as well. Because one thing, I'm just going on about my experience, but one thing my mom always tells me about is when, you know, when it's dark and you'll get lights, you make fire and everybody kind of sits around the fire and they just make jokes and talk about whatever. You could almost say it's like offloading. What's you they laugh? I'm laughing at my mom. <laughs> I'm making noise. I'm so I'm not laughing at you. No, continue. 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 Okay. Yeah. No, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, no, you could almost say it's like therapy. But what I would want to ask you is because, you know, um, obviously everything that you went through, they put you through a process whereby you had to kind of re... Well, you know, get better and come back into society and become the person you are now. I like the fact that you went on further to go and seek help for your mental health, really. Um, is that something you would advise a lot? Because we've talked about mental health many times on this podcast and it's definitely an agenda that I, I personally want to push. I want there to be conversations because I feel like there's, there's um, even me, my own um, ignorance is bliss. There was a very long time, yeah, when I even thought, like, not mental health's a myth, but just, you know, if you need to go to a therapist, then you must be really, really crazy. Till, you yeah. know, me as well, I went through my own situation and I, se- I seek help. Is that an agenda which you feel like, you know, it's something that needs to get pushed out there a lot, especially with the older generation, because there's always this stigma about don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. And when they're not talking, 
they're holding in things and then it's like are you really growing into who you need to be what, what would you say about that I think there's a need and it's an important need for mental health issues in everywhere in, in Africa, particularly in Sierra Leone. You know, first of all, we've been through so much and there's no space for people to have discussions about it, to understand what they've learned. Now, I, I think I don't want us to become like the West where there's an obsession with therapy because the West overdoes over it, right? Well, like, you know, if you, don't, if you don't have your goldfish in school, then you go to therapy for it. No, I don't want us to reach that level. You know what I mean? But, but I think there is, um, there's a middle ground that allows us. I think we're a culture that do not speak about pain. We kind of hide it and pretend that it does not exist until it goes, hopefully it will go away if you put your head, you know? Uh, and I think that allows other things to happen. Um, so I think what we need to do, we need to find a, a, a fine balance. But if we go back to our traditions, we used to have this in the villages before all of these things got destroyed, where you have the older people who sit on the veranda if a boy is passing by, a girl is passing by, will go, you know, come and sit next to me. Tell me, how are you feeling today? You have a conversation. Then they tell you a story about when they were a boy and they tried to go to the next town and they almost drowned in the river or whatever the other story is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they give you therapy basically that's how we used to be right mm. but because of urbanization everybody's in the capital city there's no space for that yeah. you know because everybody's struggling in freetown trying to make money trying to watch so there's no space to hear stories at the end of your day so that that medicine can be put into you perspective can be found that none of that exists all the parents are at work all the time trying to make ends meet so the kids are left to this so we need space for for discussions. We have a lot of mental health issues. We have problems. We have psychological issues. We have issues of how um, men treat young girls. We have issues oh. like the, the recent uh, sexual violence cases and rape cases we have in Sierra Leone. I've been dealing with these issues through my work as UNICEF for a while because there's no space to, for young girls to feel like they can talk about this thing. They can yeah. report something. So, you know, they go through it and they hide it, you know. Mm. Most Sierra Leonean girls will tell you as when they are little, their uncle starts to, you know, they put it inside in the middle of their, they make so they say, well, can't see me, can't fend me. You know, That's these are part of the, the cultural things that we don't discuss mm. and, 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 and because there's no space for it, you know. Uh, and I think particularly we need space for our women, our girls, where they feel comfortable to come and talk where they're not shamed because they're calling out something. We don't have these things in Sierra Leone, you know. Mm. Not to do it like the West too much, but we need something, you know. Yeah. Something, need, something needs to be done because, uh, do you know what it is? I think naturally, we're Sierra Leoneans, I've said this before, I feel like we're very resilient people. We know how to just get up and, you know, and keep it moving. But there's some situations where you can't do that. You have to tackle it. One of them being, of course, um, you know, these a lot of these recent sexual assault situations that have been happening. And I'm even starting to think that many of them are just being brought up because of social media. Mm -hmm. Many Absolutely. of them are being brought up because of the time that we're in now. Like, everyone is very alert, especially on social media. But mm -hmm. I know these are things that have been happening for years. We've been, my mum's been telling me that a lot of, not to put this particular tribe out there, but like if we talk about, let's say like fuller people, it's very common to have for like a grown fuller man to be with a young girl. It's very common to marry a young girl. It's very common in a lot of tribes actually. You know, yeah. these are old 
traditions or old cultural practices that need to be abolished because they're they're very demonizing to what to who we are as Syrianians. that needs to be abolished um we need to start thinking like just like what you said more about mental health um um i always get confused i always confuse the letters but f fgm fgm right fgm all of that bondo society all of these things that are not needed in sierra leone they need to go and then just like what you're saying we need to make room for the things that actually do need to be spoken about so mental health i can imagine you know many of our aunties or you know our you know grandparents or whatever they've grown up for example with um with the bondo society thinking that it's normal and it's not we don't even realize what that does to them mentally what they've, is the point of it? Can they, I they've, they've, they've literally circumcised you. No, I know what it is. Yeah, nah. I want to say to them, like, this is my thing. No disrespect. I'm not trying to come into your situation and tell you guys, okay, I am telling you, what you're doing is wrong. But what what is the purpose behind why you're doing it? Do you really know the real reason yeah. why you're doing it? Because it's if you don't women. have a, a valid purpose as to why you're doing this, why... Are you doing it? Does that make sense? I feel like, just like what you said, Aisha, a lot of people out there, I think majority of them are, I'd say probably 99% of people are suffering PTSD and don't even know it, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of them have got probably schizophrenia. A lot of them are bipolar. A lot of them, do you understand? And they, they just think it's normal. And um, yeah. there's like, it's just like what you said, but you know what, as well, when you said the stuff about girls, right, especially with the whole, you know, thing that happened to poor Khadija and many girls, like you said, social media is highlighting it, conversations are happening because people are talking out more, yeah, I think it's something that's happened for generations where um, older men are going for small girls and that, but one other thing that I want to, like, ask about is, I'm pretty sure that there's a stigma around small boys as well that isn't being talked about, do you understand? And, and that's, that's my other worry, because it's like, I know there's a lot of focus on the females because, you know, it's, it's not, it's more frowned upon to be, or to be in, engaged in homosexual behaviours than mm. it is for females, which is why which the is focus crazy. is more on girls. But mm. actually, do we know what's going on with the small boys? Are they yeah. doing these things to the boys? What are they, what are they doing? Yeah. Another thing as well is, not calling out i'm saying i'm not saying every foreigner does this but foreigners that come in and do things with the children groom the children to the point where little kids are like you know their own mentality is like oh there's a you know foreigner let's let's do certain things to you know catch the attention why are you age seven eight nine ten eleven twelve upwards (laughs) why is your focus getting the attention of the foreigner because that's what they're doing we yeah. need to look into children as a whole, not just to girls, because I yeah. really feel like, you know, it's not because it's not talked about it with little boys, but I feel like there's a problem going on and that's how little boys are growing up to become the issue. Yeah, yeah. but that's, that's exactly, I think we need to have, we don't have respect for girls and for women and there's no space to teach girls and boys how to be really in society, to avoid being sexualized all the time or to avoid um, they're even enablers also. There are older people who are enablers of these situations mm-hmm. because it can benefit them financially or for whatever reason. You know, I've heard many things in Australia where somebody is leaving, a young girl is leaving to go see somebody much older than them, and the older person will say, Boteda Imanele send for me. You know, you know. So it's like, okay, so you're basically enabling the child to go and be molested. Yeah. 
for certain things because probably it has happened to that person and they normalized it. Yeah. And so I think what needs to happen is we need, first of all, I think we need to give space for our women and our girls to express themselves the way they want to. I believe that the idea of freedom is always choice. Choice for people to decide what they want to do as long as it's not detrimental to society. So for example, you're talking about the Bondo society. Girls should be given the choice to decide whether they want to join or not. And you see many girls who say no. So, yes. but if you don't make any choice, so that's what I mean, which in the game says itself that they don't want to be part of it. Maybe it used to work for some people, yes. but it doesn't work for this new generation anymore. But okay. if you give them the choice to say no, instead of imposing an idea on them, but if you really look at all these situations, it's because it's male dominance, right? Mm -hmm. The whole idea is always men trying to control how women express themselves. That's what it is until we actually understand truly and teach our men and our boys and even our leaders in power that you cannot be in charge as a man of how a woman thinks or feels about herself. Absolutely not. Then we start a conversation about you that. You can nurture it positively. Absolutely. But you can't, you, you can't control it. Thank no. you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank it really is like even what they fear. Sorry, Aisha. God, sorry, sorry. It's all right. I was, I was just going to say, like, even with the whole Bondo society, it's like the whole point of it, yeah, is so that you're not, as a woman, you're not promiscuous. Mm. That's literally it. So that in itself is, is literally for the, how do I put it, to look appealing to a man. So a man will want to marry you. So you won't look like, you know, you did pass pass or anything like that. That's mm. literally what, that's one of the, you know, the premises of the Bondo society. And it's just like, are you, are you being serious? One, I think the other day I heard that, um, you know, they do it to as young as three months old. Mm. Three months old, a baby going through something like that. And then some, some girl, with some girls, it's actually even much older. I was watching um, a YouTube video of um, a girl. She's, um, I think her parents are Sierra Leonean, but she was born in Gambia or something like that. And she had it done to her in Gambia. And with her even... Because you, what you just said, Ishmael, you said that um, what if they give the women, what if they give the girls a choice? So with this girl now, she was with her mum, I think she was at her auntie's house, and um, her auntie must have been like, oh, do you want this bag? I think it was something along the lines, do you want this bag? And she was just like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. And then she was just like, okay, follow me. They took her into the backyard. If I remember correctly, she said there were like three or four women there. One of them's now basically put her on the floor, one of them's there, you know, don't want to get too deep into it, but, you know, holding her head down and all of that kind of stuff and basically covering her, her face so she can't even see who's doing whatever they're doing to her. So now they've obviously done whatever they've done. And it just, it just goes to show you that they're, they're even luring some girls in. Mm. From what I've been told, some of them, I think in like older generations, it's been a thing where they've had a ceremony. I know in Sierra Leone, it's like a ceremony that they do. Yeah, you get the double. You start to be like a woman, all of that kind of stuff. And then the, the big, the cutting comes after. Now, yeah. what is that? It's very manipulative. It really is. But if you were to tell this older generation this, they probably see it, see it as, oh, we're trying to change our culture or whatever. Do you know what I think as well? I think the reason why they even, um, what's the word? There's pushback as well with them is kind of like, yeah. I think most of them will be like, yeah, it's tradition, but most of them because, you know, they had to go through it, so why shouldn't you have to go through it type thing? Mm. But if you know the pain, why are you trying to inflict it? You even know that there's no point. Mm. Why are you doing that? Mm. Why are you doing that? It's no, it's no need for it. Not, but, but this is also the genius of, of the masculine world, right? So over the years, what has happened is that men have been able 
to convince other women to believe that this is good for them. So those women have now become the, yes. the purveyors of this madness. You see what I mean? So that's what we need to undo. I think it still needs to come from, you know, like exactly what you said, why would a man know how a woman will feel if that happens to them or not? It's not a discussion a man should have. Mm-hmm. Or a man should decide that. Oh, if if you don't, if you're not caught, you can be promiscuous. I mean, who even? Where's the evidence for that? Even, you know. Show them evidence. Yeah, so, but what about the men that are so promiscuous, running around, having all kinds of girlfriends left and right? So, what should be done to them then? To make sure they should wear a chassis belt. Exactly. We can castrate a few of them maybe and see what happens. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, so everything to... together, then you can open it like a box. Yeah, so yeah, go live your life. What I'm trying to say is <laughs> we have this expectation for girls and women, but then when it comes to boys, we don't have the same expectation. It's almost glorified. If yeah. you're a boy and you did you did pass pass, you get boku get a friend and this that and man. that. Yeah, but who Oh, that guy is the man, you know. And you look up, but if you're a girl, then it's like you're put in a category that diminishes you as a human being. You know? So every week, every time we do the we do the um, podcast, we big up a Sierra Leonean who is doing big things in the diaspora. Could be a business, could be a, a creative outlet, it could be anything. So I shall take it away. Yep. So today's big up you is another fellow podcast called Why Get Why Squared podcast. They're based out in Sierra Leone. I think they're two British girls and they've moved over to Sierra Leone doing their thing there. So we just want to big you guys up. And yeah, this is now the end of this episode. Oh my gosh, Ishmael, it's been an amazing episode. We've been, we've been so, we feel so privileged to have you speaking to us and just explain your story and just get it. We just chopped it up today and had, you know, spoke about many, so many things that I didn't even think that we would speak about. So I'm so happy we got to really just pick your mind today. Um, so yeah, it's been great. And yeah, we're, we're done. I'm Aisha. I'm Fiona. There's Ishmael. <laughs> Make sure you follow <laughs> him. <laughs> Make sure you follow him on Instagram. Yeah. Make sure you follow him on Instagram and buy his new book. Okay. Yeah. Keep up the sure. good job, guys. Thank Keep you. Good. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.